Have you ever heard of the word post-structuralism? How about postmodernism? How about the term critical race theory? The term standpoint theory. All of these are terms and expressions that are being employed by a number of people in the churches who have a very specific agenda that they are pushing. They have a very particular worldview or outlook of what Christianity is, what the gospel is, what the mission of the church is, and they are working, employing these pagan philosophies, ideas, concepts in order to move the church in that direction. My name is Ed Dingus. You are listening to The Reformed Rant. And today, we are ranting about an article Brad Mason put up, because Brad Mason is right in the middle of uh, the push for this particular worldview that I'm talking about. And the title of the article is Standpoint Theory is Not Anti-Christian. Standpoint Theory is not anti-Christian. Buckle up. I'm going to have a few things to say regarding Mason's article. going to try to help you understand what the heck standpoint theory really is, how it's related to things like postmodernism, post-structuralism, how it relates to uh, critical race theory, and how it's being used to reshape and transform uh, evangelicalism in, in our day and our age. All right, let's get to it. If you look at what's going on <clears throat> throughout evangelicalism in America, and I suspect other parts of the world as well, the, the devil has certainly been active in the churches and has been disguised. You know, the, the old expression, the devil is always in the details. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, a lot of folks have been looking at what's going on with the SBC convention coming up, uh, the pastor's conference, the list, the person who's running the conference, the list of preachers that have been invited to participate in, in the conference, uh, and the focus, uh, it seems, of the conference. And surely we are seeing that without a doubt, the devil is in the details. Now, what irks me a little bit about all of this is that discernment folks, people who have been following this for the last five, six, seven years and have been screaming at the top of their lungs 
that this is where we're going and have, for the most part, not only been ignored, they've been vilified and slandered and hated for their voice. And if you look at the progression of, let's call it the progression of the revelation of the the devil in the, in the details of this social justice, racial reconciliation nonsense that's going on. And as things have unfolded and new truths have been admitted to openly, it seems that the polemicists and the discernment ministries, the apologists, those who have been raising their voice in opposition to this movement have been proven right time and time and time again. Now, some people might think that those of us who have been on this side of the fence are going to pound our chest and and feel good about that. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know any of us who feel good about it. All of us are sick about it because we've seen it coming and we don't want it to come. We would rather it not come than being right about it coming. We would have rather, we would have preferred to have been wrong on this to be. Every one of us would have preferred to have been wrong. But as it turns out, sadly, we, we are right. And guys like Brad Mason writing articles like Standpoint Theory is not anti-Christian in response to uh, probably Tom Askell's article regarding uh, these theories and ideas that was published recently at Founders. Um, guys like Brad Mason uh, are unwittingly, I suppose, enemies in the church who are smuggling in ideas and views and teachings about the very gospel itself that are opposed to reform theology, all the while calling themselves reformed. Now, A.D. Robles talked a little bit about the wizardry of uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, KSP, right? I always get her middle name and last name inverted. At any rate, uh, he talked about the wizardry that she employs. And this is this is a tactic I've talked a little bit about, uh, but they all do it. They all use it. People like Brad Mason are going to pound the table and scream at the top of their lungs that they are orthodox, that they are reformed, that they affirm historic Christian tradition. And out of the other side of their mouth, they're going to trash and call into question the salvation of men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And uh, so you can't call into into question the salvation of those men without having something seriously flawed in your understanding of the Scripture. You can't read them and, and look at their writings, look at their impact, and call into question their salvation. I've already talked about slavery uh, ad nauseum here, and I'm going to talk about it again, not today. I'm going to talk about Brad Mason and his view of 
standpoint theory. One of the things that kind of bugs me about this article is I, I looked high and low in the article trying to find a concise definition of what standpoint theory really is. And Mason referenced a lot of people who were writing about what it does. He never really provides what I would consider to be a good, concise definition. And I think that's deliberate. I think that's on purpose. I don't think these guys like to be concise. I think they would much rather uh, have as much mud in the water as possible so that they can convince you, no, 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 that's a log that you just see protruding slightly out of the, the water. That's not a crocodile. It's not an alligator. It's not going to eat you. It's a log. Trust me. Right? Um, you need muddy water to do that. If the water's crystal clear, you can see that it's, you know, an 18-foot crocodile that is looking for some lunch. And that's what we have with positions like standpoint theory, positions that endorse standpoint theory. So I'm, I'm going to walk through this article and try to get through it in a reasonable amount of, of time. Note, uh, there's no text of Scripture used by Brad Mason to actually support the view of standpoint theory. He takes King David and he mentions the Good Samaritan as examples that would endorse standpoint theory. And I'm going to show you exactly why those examples actually contradict not just the idea of biblical judges, but they contradict the heartbeat definition of what standpoint theory is all about. So Mason begins his article and he says, contrary to much demagoguery, standpoint theory or similar standpoint epistemology is in fact rooted in empiricist evidentialist epistemology. The epistemic relevance of standpoint theory, says Mason, has to do with evidence and justification, not the nature of truth its objective character, nor its public accessibility. Well, um, gosh, I don't know how one can talk about epistemology outside of its relationship to the nature of truth because they are bound up in one another. How you go about providing evidence for a truth claim and justification is indelibly linked to the nature of the truth that you are seeking to know and then defend. So immediately right out of the gate, Mason throws a big pile of dirt into the pond so that he can muddy the waters. That is the tactic he is employing. Okay, let's go to, let's see, an objective. Oh, an objective source. The Encyclopedia Britannica. And see how it defines standpoint theory. I would think that's a credible, good source to tell us what is this theory. Because if you're like most Christians, you have no idea. You've never heard of this before. Never in your life. And if you're like most Christians, you probably don't really care. Well, 
you're going to have to start caring. I'm sorry. The wolves are plenty, and you're going to have to start to care about stuff like this a little bit. Because if you don't, your church is going to go out and hire a pastor who believes this nonsense, and you're not going to know it. And you're going to be clueless. And two years from now, it'll be too late because that pastor will be preaching this garbage from the pulpit once he's comfortable and once he's convinced all the powers that be in your church that he's right. And then your only option at that point will be leave your church. Let's see if we can avoid that. That's a nasty scenario that you want to avoid. Standpoint theory, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, is a feminist theoretical perspective that argues that knowledge stems from social position. It's situational. Socially situated. The perspective denies that traditional science is objective and suggests that research and theory has ignored and marginalized women and feminist ways of thinking. The theory emerged from the Marxist argument that people from an oppressed class have special access to knowledge that is not available to those from a privileged class. That is Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism, guys. That is ancient Gnosticism. Now, notice that if this Marxist idea can appeal to the oppressed class, which, theoretically, is the larger class. It's larger than the privileged class. What exactly are they doing by saying you have access to, to knowledge, special access to knowledge? Isn't that a privilege? Isn't one of the gripes of those of us who are not as privileged as others, that we're not as privileged as others? Aren't we like envious of the millionaire or the billionaire or the person in power? Aren't Americans envious of those who receive the attention of the large group like the Hollywood elites? Don't we aspire to have that privilege? So isn't this really this tactic? Isn't it exploiting the sinful desire of those of us in the world, not unbelievers, sinners? This happens to Christians as well. Isn't it exploiting our sinful appetite for greater privilege? than we currently have. See, privilege, these guys don't talk about this because it would just completely blow up their entire philosophy. Privilege, privilege comes in degrees. I'm more privileged than a lot of people. And there's a lot of people more privileged than me. And every human being for the most part, can say that, except for that one person on the planet who just happens to be the least privileged of all of us. I don't know who that is. There there has to be one. But this is the point, guys. Let's not chase the red herring or the distraction. The point is, 
Privilege is a scale, a sliding scale. And who is responsible for doling out privilege? Well, a Christian who is informed by the text of Scripture will tell you that it's God. Because God is sovereign and God providentially is ruling all things. God establishes the boundaries of human beings, of all men. All right. Now, the standpoint theory, being a feminist theoretical perspective, this is not only being used now by feminists in the evangelical church, it's being used by everybody. It's being used by African Americans. It's being used by homosexuals. It's being used by all of these groups who are opposed to historic, traditional, orthodox Christian teaching, and it's being employed as a tool to deconstruct the systems. And it is a way to grab, in their minds, power, because that's what it's about. Good, solid Reformed pastors and even good, solid Arminian pastors are going to tell you that this is not about power. The Church of Jesus Christ, the traditional historic Orthodox teachings of the Christian faith has nothing to do with power. But because these groups think this way, they think that it does. In fact, to the world, it looks like a system of power. And it really isn't. But that's what it appears to be to them. It's ordered, it's structured. There is, there's greater responsibility and authority depending on the role in the church that a person has. This, this is true. But the church belongs to Jesus Christ, not men. So you're not grabbing power from men and you're not grabbing power from Christ. All you're doing is subverting the churches. All you're doing is perverting the teachings of Christianity. But this is how these guys think. This is what they see. This is what the, the women think. I remember not too long ago, I, I read a tweet from a woman who basically said in the tweet, and I'm going to paraphrase, I can't, remember, I can't remember by quote, but she basically said, ladies, if you're learning the Bible from a man, you're learning it defectively. You need to learn it from a woman's perspective, from a woman's point of view. There's a case where you've got a feminist, rebellious woman rejecting God's order hanging the name of Jesus Christ around her neck and fully embracing standpoint theory and bringing it into the church. A wolf if ever there was one. Because when you read Paul, you read God, and God clearly lays out the responsibilities of each one of us when it comes to reading Scripture. 66 inspired projects in the Bible, books, 66, written by over 40 men over 1,500 years. If standpoint theory is not anti-Christian, the Bible is not divinely inspired. Standpoint theory is antithetical to the idea that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation was written from the perspective of mostly, predominantly, Jewish men. All Jewish men. 
Think about that. One ethnic group, one gender wrote the Bible. If standpoint theory is valid, the Bible is not. Tell Brad Mason to stick that in his pipe and smoke it. What Brad Mason and others fail to appreciate right out of the gate when it comes to standpoint theory, so now let's talk a little bit of philosophy, and I'll come back around to Scripture here in a second. What they fail to appreciate right out of the gate is that these experiences that are socially situated by all of us, every single one of us, we live our own situation in the world that God placed us in deliberately on purpose for his glory. And if you're a Christian, for your good, for my good. Nevertheless, every single one of my experiences in life, my perspective on life, is not an empirical, uh, evidential claim to truth before it is an interpretation, you see. It is always first and foremost my interpretation of what's going on in my life. Right now, interpreting life experiences is what I would call deontological. There's a right way and a wrong way for you to interpret your life's experiences. And that right way is laid out for us in Scripture. If we understand who God is, if we understand who we are, if we understand the nature of divine revelation, we understand the nature of sin, we understand that our hearts are wicked and deceitful, who can really know them but God? Then we understand that all of these experiences we're having our interpretations, and what we must look to do and pray to God for is grace so that we can interpret them according to God's interpretation of what's going on in our life. If we just blanketly toss out that everybody's own perspective on what's happening to them in their particular social setting is equally valid, we may as well toss out the Scripture we know for a fact that unbelievers' minds have been blinded by the God of this world. They do not interpret reality according to God's interpretation of reality. We know they're enemies of God. We know they're blind. We know they're ignorant. And we know they love their sin and they hate their Creator. If that's all true, on what planet could you ever say to anyone that your own autonomous interpretation of what's happening to you in your social setting is perfectly valid. It's fine as far as it goes. All right, got a little I got a little a little worked up there. Mason, Brad Mason and the rest of these guys absolutely positively ignore this. At a minimum, just to be charitable, they decouple their systematic theology from these ideas completely. They, com they seem to ignore theology proper, 
hamartiology, anthropology. They seem to ignore all of what the Bible teaches about these things when they have discussions and write articles about this topic. It's about as inconsistent as it could possibly be. And that has been my beef with the proponents of racial reconciliation, uh, social justice, uh, the same-sex attraction, the feminist movement into the churches, is that the pastors are not insisting that all of these claims that are being made in these areas be subjected to the teachings of the Bible in all of the areas that this movement affects. And this movement touches on the nature of God, the nature of human beings, the nature of sin, the gospel, redemption, regeneration, the new birth, everything. And that's ignored. And when you hear people like me say this is heresy, that's why. These guys aren't going to come out and, 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 and they're going to do what A.D. Robles says with their wizardry. That's what they're going to do. But trust me, they can't hold these views unless there's something in their theology that's heretical. And it leads to, if, you, if the laws of logic matter, if logic matters at all, it necessarily moves you into heresy. Either that or radical inconsistency. Uh, and this is worse than being an inconsistent Arminian by far. By far. So let's take a look at Scripture and evaluate standpoint theory in light of what the Bible says about epistemology. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, we have a lot of that, they became fools. How dare Paul to refer to people as fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Just a side note here. Do you know how many evangelicals would, if this text, let's say this text is absolutely true, but it doesn't appear in the Scripture. If someone read Scripture and concluded the text teaches these things and used this very language, they would accuse the person of writing it as being unchristian and lacking in charity. And it's written by the Apostle Paul. Actually, it's written by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit selected these words. It's funny to me how that some of us can be accused of not being loving or charitable or kind when the Holy Spirit himself uses the same kind of language we're being accused of being unloving for using. Isn't that amazing? Let's be consistent. Look, just because you don't have the guts to stand up and say the right thing, the right way, directly, without apology, doesn't mean everybody should. Paul apparently did. So don't criticize me for using the same kind of language and directness that Paul used. Paul used it, it wasn't unloving. Paul used it, it was loving. The Holy Spirit used it, it was loving. Jesus used it and said it, it was loving. 
So unless you're ready to accuse Jesus of being unloving, don't accuse me of being unloving. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Well, unbelievers set their mind on the things of the flesh, right? For the mindset on the flesh is what? Death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. But the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But somehow, we've convinced ourselves, the social justice folks have, that unbelieving pagans who were God-haters actually deserve equality. They deserve a fair shake. Everybody deserves a fair shake. Everybody deserves equality. That's justice. Listen to me. That has never been justice in the Bible. And you will never, ever, ever read anyone who can show you a clear text in Scripture that demonstrates that. They're always going to point to a text that says, do justice. And from that text that says, do justice, they're going to extrapolate all these interpretations and ideas of what that means. They're going to tell you it means open borders, even though it doesn't. It's, it doesn't. It's, the Scripture has never advocated for anything remotely resembling what these people are arguing for. It means when you conduct yourself in the churches and in life as a Christian, you should do justice. You should treat others fairly with justice. Don't take advantage of people. But they turn it into something much more than that. Love your neighbor. Don't step, don't step over top of them. If you've seen that your neighbor has been beaten up and is in need of some help, you don't get along. Maybe your neighbor is a different religion than you. Maybe your, your neighbor, maybe it's like me. Maybe I'm a Browns fan. Maybe I know my neighbor's a Steelers fan, and I see that he's been beaten up and robbed, and I'm not going to help him because he's a Steelers fan. Come on. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who are your neighbors? Got news for you. Everybody. Everybody around you that you encounter. Anyone God brings into, the, into your life, whether they're a Samaritan a Jew, a Reformed person, an Arminian, a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, doesn't matter. If you see them in need, they've been, you know, love your neighbor. Don't take advantage of somebody because they're, they're old or they're really young or they're from a religion you don't like or they're an atheist. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not complicated, guys. Not complicated. 2 Corinthians 4.4, continuing with what the Bible says about epistemology, about how the mind works. In whose case, Paul said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Unbelievers are blind. Their mind is hostile toward God. They're blind when it comes to the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ 
crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. I got news for you, folks. The social justice gospel makes perfect sense to the liberals of this world. God-hating pagans understand the social justice gospel completely. Why? Because there's no spiritual components in it. There's no supernatural elements in it. It's worldly. It pertains to this world. Everything is situated in this world. The Bible stands in complete opposition and contradiction to that kind of thinking. Mason quotes a guy by the name of Oslam Sinsoy and Robin D'Angelo. I don't know if Robin's a guy or, or, or a female. Looks like a female by the spelling, but who knows these days? It's probably controversial for me to even say it's a guy or a gal. It says, minoritized groups often have the widest view of society in that they must understand both their own and the dominant group's perspective and develop a double consciousness in order to succeed. This is from a book, I guess, or an article. It looks like a book. It's on page 70. Is everyone really equal? Now, Mason comments on this and says, this has nothing to do with the access to truth, the existence of truth, or the existence of ob objective reality, and everything to do with human subjectivity, evidence, and warrant. Truth is accessible to all and equally, but socialization limits hum limits humans and individual objectivity. He goes on and quotes, continues a quote from oh, a different book, White Fragility, <laughs> White fragility. Page 11, if group membership is relevant, then we don't see the world from the universal human perspective, but from the perspective of a particular kind of human. I see. All right, so if, if it is the case, guys, if it is the case that all knowledge is socially situated, how can people in minority groups have wider views of society than those in other socially situated groups? This is a walking contradiction. I mean, this is self-referentially incoherent. If a poor black woman can know something about the perspective of a rich white man, then why can't a rich white man know something about the perspective of a poor black woman? This seems utterly ridiculous to me. It is a walking contradiction. In one breath, minoritized groups have a broader perspective of society while previously it's been argued that you have special access to knowledge that others can't have. Well, which one is true? Either, I mean, what is it about privilege that makes you less privileged, epistemically speaking? That's the idea here, guys. The idea here is the, those people who are less privileged in the world are ep epistemically more privileged. How? How does that work? And based on the texts of Scripture that I just read, where it's talking about all men from every ethnic group, from every culture, from every society, from every perspective in life, all sinners, everyone, how can this possibly be the case? How can you read this and read the Bible and with a straight face say standpoint theory is not anti-Christian? 
Not only is it anti-Christian, it's self-referentially incoherent. It's, it contradicts itself. And Mason's going to do that in a few moments. The biggest problem, folks, and follow this, the biggest problem with group identification is where people draw the lines. Ah, <laughs> yes, someone, somewhere, has to draw the lines. Let's say, let's take two African-American kids or two white kids. You can even use me. I grew up pretty poor. I didn't have running water in my house until I was in the fifth grade. Take another white kid who didn't experience any of that, middle class, maybe even wealthy. We're both white. We both belong to the same melanin group. But I guarantee you, our perspectives are different. And I also guarantee you that I can know something about his perspective and he can know something about mine. The only special access we have to knowledge is knowledge of our own experiences in this life that we've gone through personally. And even those experiences have to be interpreted in light of Scripture. And no one is talking about how these experiences are being interpreted. And that is the linchpin of this conversation. Who draws the lines? There's no denying that there are people groups in the world. The Bible talks about people groups. The cursed Babel is the reason why there are people groups. God's curse introduced people groups, created them. The issue is that we could say there are over 7 billion people groups in the world if we really wanted to be consistent, you see. So the issue isn't the groups. I mean, you could have as many groups as there are people. It's the criteria that these men create in order to create the groups. You got to create the groups. You got to create the groups. And you've got to frame things in such a way that the group becomes loyal to your agenda and your ideas. How do you do that? Well, you create all these groups and then you create that privileged group. And you convince all these other groups that are not as privileged as the privileged group, that you're on their side, and that you want to take this privilege that seems to have collected in this privileged group to a greater degree than in any of the other groups, and you want to redistribute that privilege to all the other groups so that everybody's equal, and that's fair, and that's justice, you see. That's exactly what's taking place. And that is textbook Marxism. Regardless of what these liars will tell you. So the issue isn't the groups. It's the criteria that these men create in order to create the groups. It is the exercise of drawing up that criteria in, it is in that exercise of drawing up that criteria that we see the agenda and the sinfulness that attaches to it. Because, again, what does it do? It appeals to that lust for power, that lust for money, that lust for material things, 
right? Regardless of how you behave. You don't you no longer have to be so responsible in order to to move up the privilege ladder. You can be irresponsible and still have just as much privilege as those who are more responsible than you. Right? Jesus was in a group. He was in a group of one. Yeah. He was the minority of minorities. And still, Jesus was able to know and understand the experience of all human beings, even though he was the minority of one. We can relate to one another because we are all created in the image of God, every one of us. That image of God is stamped on every single human being, and standpoint theory ignores that fact. There you have it. Anthropology, the nature of man. That's a perfect example of how anthropology is being ignored in order to put forward these kinds of notions and ideas. If you have a good, solid, biblical understanding of anthropology, it will help you avoid adopting errors like standpoint theory, so long as the Holy Spirit fills you. There are pagans in the church who are pushing these ideas, and they do not know Christ. Now, I'm not saying everyone who is on the other side of the fence on this issue entirely is not saved. There are people out there probably who are adopting these views temporarily out of ignorance. And the Holy Spirit will, I'm convinced of this, do his work in their heart and bring them out of that error. But then there are, there are many who are pagans. Now, how, do, how does that work? Well, it works, with, uh, it, it works with church discipline. That's basically how it works. And I am starting to get low on time. All right. Uh, Mason goes on uh, to, to, to continue to quote, basically saying that humans cannot be 100% objective. And anybody who knows anything understands that 100% objectivity really isn't the goal anyhow, because no one is. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I subscribe to Christianity. I wholeheartedly embrace Christian doctrine top to bottom. I am a Reformed Baptist Christian. I am not objective when it comes to these ideas. I am very biased toward Scripture, toward God, and against anything that contradicts it. I'm not open-minded when it comes to things like this. I'm not open-minded when it comes to the gospel. I'm not open-minded when it comes to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. I'm very close-minded. And contrary to modern pagans who are putting forth these kinds of ideas, that's not a vice, it's a virtue. It's a virtue of God's grace because I wouldn't be if God hadn't worked in my heart to change me by grace, a change that I did not deserve. What I deserve is eternal damnation. I don't deserve anything good from the hand of God. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what what is the moral of that text? Well, the moral of that text in this particular setting is that God has to grant repentance that leads to knowledge. And unless he does, you're not going to have any knowledge, not true knowledge. Not true knowledge. Patricia Hill Collins Mason includes a quote from her book, Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Standpoint theory, she says, or standpoint epistemology, posits that experience and creative social action provide distinctive angles of vision on racism, uh, heteropatriarchy, and capitalist class relations for people who are differentially privileged and penalized with such systems. Um, She says, the purpose of standpoint epistemology was never to become a theory of truth. Rather, standpoint epistemology is a dimension of theorizing that recognizes the significance of power relations in producing knowledge. Gibberish. Um, Wizardry. Wizardry, yes, without a doubt. Look, Christians accept the fact that in a fallen world, power structures are not only inevitable, they're necessary in order to avoid chaos. Christians claim that it is God who establishes the power structures in society and assigns to each man his lot in life. Christians also accept that sin will inevitably mean that those power structures will privilege some and challenge or disadvantage others And there will be a perversion taking place within those power structures because of sin. Sin perverts nearly everything, or it does pervert everything. When one examines Jesus in the New Testament, he never finds those men focusing on any of this, even though it existed at their time as well. In fact, probably a thousand times worse than we see it in our own culture. Yet Jesus and the apostles didn't focus on it. They did not focus on it. I'm not going to get into critical race theory. I am going to say that if you go over to Founders Ministries and read Tom Askell's article on that, it is more than enough fodder uh, for you to evaluate and understand the dangers that are being put forth by guys like Brad Mason. I'm reminded of Paul's ominous warning to the Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. The project behind these theories, the one thing they all have in common is that they embrace, to one point or another, deconstructionism in various ways. Rather than understanding Paul to be ordering the unqualified obedience of all Christians to the civil laws 
And I shouldn't say unqualified. I mean, by unqualified, I mean so long as the law does not ask a Christian to violate the law of God, we have an obligation laid upon us by God himself to obey those laws. These philosophies engage in a radical critique of the civil law itself and are committed to emancipation by deconstruction, not just from civil laws, not just from the government and, and replacing the government with their own ideas, but from the law of God, from Scripture, right? This has become more the case in Christian churches, uh, wanting to have female pastors, wanting to accept homosexuality, wanting to have affirmative action on the elder board, just like the world thinks and does. We're not the world. Whatever happened to the Christian belief that God is sovereign and by his providence, he controls all things? This used to lead pastors to work with believers in order to help them deal with the situa- their situations in life, right? Of course, we have to take responsibility for our own actions, no matter what, and not blame our problems that we created through poor decisions and bad behavior on somebody else. That's a Christian principle. Consequence, sin has consequences, A poor man must also accept God's appointment and not take the attitude that he deserves better or more out of life. That sort of thinking is absolutely contrary to Christian virtue. And yet, it is that kind of thinking that men like Brad Mason fosters in others through their writings and their pernicious lies. It creates an atmosphere of dissatisfaction not only with your station in life, but incredible envy toward others who are more privileged. And you are, you are granted by these men, you are granted permission to engage in what the Bible would call hate toward those who are more privileged than you. That is the heartbeat of what's going on right now. You can hate the white guy, because he's the product of white supremacy. He's a racist even though he doesn't know it. You can hate Christians who have been mean to homosexuals and they're bigots. You can hate evangelicalism because they won't, they won't hear the voices of women by allowing them to pastor churches and serve on elder boards and so on and so forth. It plays off our own sinful proclivities and brings out the worst of our sinful nature when we look at each other. That's what's happening here, guys. That's the result of all of this. Now, Mason uses King David and, the, and Nathan the prophet to try and say that Nathan, you know, used standpoint theory, which is anachronistic top to bottom. It is a joke. Mason uses David as an example of someone who is being asked to look at his sin from another person's standpoint. David is the king. He's more than a little privileged. Yet, miraculously, David is able to see things from the poor man's perspective, which I thought standpoint theory said you can't do. I thought standpoint theory at its core said that that, that people who are less privileged have privileged access to knowledge that a king wouldn't have. You see the contradiction? 
If standpoint theory is true, David shouldn't be able to relate to that poor man. But he can relate to him, and he does relate to him. And it isn't standpoint theory that's being used here. Let me let, me let you in on what's going on. David thought he got away with something. Yeah, I, th I'm, I know David knew that he sinned. But he covered it up, and he hid it, and he thought. He thought he did a good job. He thought he got away with something. And all the prophet's doing is coming to David and exposing his sin and saying, Hey, David, guess what? God knows what you did. God knows what you did. And there were consequences. There were consequences. I'm going to wrap it up at this point. I had a few more things I wanted to say, but I think I'm going a little long at this point. So, number one, standpoint epistemology, standpoint theory, ignores the basic Christian doctrine of total depravity and lends credibility to beliefs based on a person's own sinful interpretation of their experience within a group in the world. That's first. Second, standpoint epistemology employs and borrows from pagan philosophies that are, at their very core, antithetical to Christian belief. Authority and tradition are deconstructed and dismantled on the assumption that the experiences of the individual in the here and now represent the real authority. Sola Scriptura may be retained in the confession, but for all practical purposes, it is deconstructed along with other basic Christian doctrines. Third, standpoint epistemology draws an arbitrary line in order to form the groups of the individuals whose experiences it is focused on. All white people do not have the same experiences. They are not all equally privileged. There are many, many blacks and Asians and Indians and you name it, who are more privileged than many, many white people. More educated, more sophisticated, so on and so forth. All black people do not have the same experiences. They just don't. This is a serious flaw in standpoint epistemology and one that no one is addressing. Well, I should say no one within their camp is addressing. Fourth, Christianity teaches, Christianity teaches that there is only one standpoint that matters where the gospel is concerned, and that is God's standpoint. And from God's standpoint, all men are totally depraved, God-hating sinners in rebellion against their Creator. And they work 24-7 trying to come up with one excuse after another to justify their own selfish, sinful rebellion. That is a fact. Fifth, Modern standpoint epistemology cannot be embraced by any Christian without compromising the integrity of Christian belief and the very heartbeat of the gospel itself, which classifies all men as rebellious sinners blinded by the God of this world, hostile to God from birth forward. All right. Thank you for listening to uh, the podcast today. Uh, again, it's uh, been some time since I did a podcast. I had uh, an unfortunate situation with my my pup, and uh, that has kind of knocked me out of um, out of uh, being active for a little while. And so, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to start putting Reform Rants back up 
on a more regular basis at this at this point. Look, uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can, if you're listening to the Reformed Rant in the app, you can leave uh, remarks, comments, so forth there. You can go over to reformedreasons.com, which is my my blog spot where I don't hardly ever blog. I just do the rant for the most part. Um, or you can also go over to a couple of different Facebook groups, uh, Reformation Charlotte. There are two Reformation Charlotte Facebook uh, groups. Uh, join in. Uh, iron sharpens iron, a lot of good uh, encouraging uh, stuff going on, a lot of discernment, a lot of apologetics, uh, sharing of the gospel and so forth. So go over there and uh, sign up um, and uh, listen, keep your chin up, hang in there. Uh, there's only one option for you as a Christian and that's stay in the fight. I know we want to run away sometimes, we get tired, we get discouraged, we get upset, we get you know emotional and drained, but we are called to this fight through the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is called to this fight. We must all stand up for the truth because we love it. And we love the church. And we love those in the church. We love those in the body of Christ. And we love this lost and dying world. So we have to stay in the fight, stay engaged. Keep the armor of God on. Keep swinging the sword. Pray for grace. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around.